back to the reset rebel with me joe yule and lately i've been feeling like it would be a very um lovely episode to go into the world that i think a lot of people have been uh, experiencing in recent years recent months um you know everybody's talking about the new year and kind of you know having all this pressure to change the game moving into 2022 um but i feel that there's still you know a lingering darkness or heaviness hanging over us from the years gone by Um, and one of the things that just caught my attention the other day when I was having a a browse around um, was a lady who's running some uh, workshops on anxiety and it felt like a really great opportunity um, as that just jumped out of the page to actually host this conversation um, for you and with you today and I'm lucky to be joined by Helen Dickinson. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much Joe. thanks for having me. Thank you so much for, for sparing the time to pop in here and have a little conversation with us. And um, First of all, I have to ask you a little bit about that accent because I, <laughs> I absolutely love it. Yeah, I'm from um, Holmfirth in West Yorkshire, which is famous for last of the summer wine. The actual hill you see Compo going down the path in. Yeah, that's that's where I live. Oh, that's where I'm from, yeah. What a beautiful part of the world. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is. It's like contrast from going from uh, from West Yorkshire to living in Ibiza. It is, yeah. Yeah, but um, it's very rural and when I go back, I love it. You, you know, you, you get out of the airport at Manchester and there's just all the rolling... Pennines, the hills, it's absolutely beautiful and I think you take it for granted when you live there and it's a little bit like Ibiza when you're here all the time, you start to take it for granted a little bit. That's very true actually but there is something like unbelievably special. I was in Yorkshire for an episode, I don't know, probably in the, the mid-70s, we've got 105 episodes now but it was um, it was in Yorkshire and it was with um, World Unplugged and that's where one of our guests is actually from, Justin Manville, one of the musicians and we went to Broughton Hall. Okay. I don't know if you've ever been. No, I haven't, no. It's like a sort of it? a stately home, I don't know, somewhere in Yorkshire, yeah, no, I'm not really big. that. <laughs> it's really big. It's a bit like me saying somewhere in Surrey which is where I'm from which is absolutely enormous (laughs) absolutely yeah Mm. well it was very beautiful and yeah I felt like that's something like a Jane Eyre movie every morning when I opened up the curtains it was like wow someone just painted me a painting (laughs) yeah Wuthering Heights yeah yeah that's the one yeah (laughs) that's what I was thinking you can be Heathcliff if you like no thanks (laughs) (laughs) no probs Um, I mean what brought you to to live in Ibiza so I started DJing late in life in my 40s I was 42 when I started and I was very lucky in the UK I started getting a few breaks and uh, but I was getting pigeonholed a little bit I think because of my age I was getting pigeonholed into playing old school gigs and that wasn't what I wanted to play. I wanted to play, you know, things a bit more, a bit more modern. And I'd never been to Ibiza before. It's not like I used to come in the nineties. Um, and I just thought, right, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to try in Ibiza. So I came over for a season, and I did really well. Um, and then I remember just being sat at home in the UK one afternoon, and it was great, and it was cold. And I just thought, I'm going to go. 
I've got to do it. I've got to go. Mm. So, yeah, that's what brought me over here. Wow. What made you get into DJing in your 40s? Because I have always, I've always been a clover. I've always loved music and it's something that I wanted to do. And so I had a party at my house and somebody brought their decks. <laughs> and um, there were vinyl, you know, vinyl turntables and he brought a couple of boxes of records and he left them at my house. And I kept ringing him up saying, when are you going to come and pick them up? And he'd got young children and he just said... I'm really enjoying having the space for the kids. He said, you can keep them. So I was so blessed. I was so, so blessed. Where is this man? He sounds like <laughs> you should marry him. He's in Huddersfield. <laughs> He's in Holmford, actually. He's in Holmford. <laughs> you definitely, yeah, definitely don't go back to Huddersfield. Though. But hey, what, a, what a generous man. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, you know, I've had so many great gifting opportunities like that. There's people have been so generous to help me along the way yeah I've been very very lucky that kind of feels like a bit of a sign when someone comes round for a party and then leaves you their decks and their entire record collection yeah but it happens here when I got here I was working for somebody and um, I said to him have you got some turntables and he said yeah I said do you use them and he said no I said right if you ever decide to sell them can I buy them off you and he said you can have them so it happened again when I was here that's a pretty pretty clear sign there, <laughs> Helen. I think that's uh, the universe speaking to you through the through the wheels of steel. Hopefully, I've, I've hopefully I've done the job. Yeah, amazing. And then who was that that gave you the deck? I don't know if I should say. <laughs> Go on. Go on. It was Danny Savage. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah, thanks, Danny. He's also got an amazing podcast, yeah. if anyone out there is uh, actually listening. If you want to hear some other um, Ibiza-based spod, uh, podcasts, <laughs> speech-based podcasts, is where I was going with that one, then, um, yeah, definitely pop over there. I think, you know, it's very interesting to hear that. And, um, I mean, I've definitely been through those little phases of, um, you know, having a little tinker with vinyl and, you know, playing out and about actually in Brighton quite a lot in a, in a few different venues and playing at people's weddings and... You know, that was obviously terrifying. Um, and I found the whole experience, like, really, really scary. I mean, you know, being responsible for the music at somebody's wedding <laughs> feels like a really big thing. Yeah, it is. I, I do like doing the weddings over here, though, because I love that you're creating memories for people. You've got you know such a responsibility, but it's so enjoyable to to be part of that. I've had, when I used to play for Savannah, um, I've had people message me just recently saying, we were sat on the terrace and you played this track and and it really made, you know, it made those memories and, and I just love that. It is a big responsibility, but I love it, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, music does evoke, you know, and, and connect to so many different types of memories. And I've even got one from Savannah of being flown over. I think I was like a competition winner before I moved to Ibiza, obviously. And yeah, I got two two tickets to fly over for like less than 24 hours to go and see a gig. And it all ended with the after party at Savannah. And I remember trying to catch the plane home after obviously quite a few hours, <laughs> well lubricated at Savannah. And it was an interesting plane ride home. Um, but yeah, it was such a beautiful sunset there. And the music was amazing. And everyone's jumping in out of the pool and it's a good spot yeah yeah very nice yeah. so you're going to be back in action shortly in the next few months in Ibiza uh, hopefully yeah hopefully it's still a little bit um it's still a bit a bit unknown I think I think people are just testing the waters at the minute with their lineups being announced and I think people will, um will just see how the next couple of months go hopefully travel's going to be back uh back to normal 
Let's hope so. I mean, how are you feeling about the clubs reopening after sort of two years of being in this kind of bliss on the island of like less people, less kind of chaos and carnage and, you know, more peace? I can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> Don't hold back, Helen. <laughs> I can't, love. I mean, it's not like I'm out all the time, but it, that's what we come here for. We come here for that tourism and and to be part of, of people. Again, it's that memories thing, be part of people having a really good time and, and some people save up for a year, the whole year, to have this week or two in Ibiza. And I just think it's amazing. I love, I love that side of it, so I can't wait for the clubs to, to open again. I feel, you know, I had this conversation with Scott Gray in the last episode last week and, you know, we were saying the same thing. It feels like it is time for to celebrate the fact that, you know, life continues and we've made it through the last two slightly rocky years. And, you know, by the way, the C word is banned on this podcast. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. Um, you know, it has been um, full of trials and tribulations, some of it very, very positive and other, other parts of it, you know, more, more difficult to, to transition from. But I think... Yeah, celebrating in the way that we used to previously is not, you know, obviously there's definitely levels to it, but I'm looking forward to to seeing some old friends and for them to actually being able to get here and and hopefully, you know, a little uh, catch up here and there would be would be really lovely. Yeah, sure. I, I, I'm just looking forward to seeing faces without masks on <laughs> and and people have, like I said, people having a good time and enjoying themselves. I think it's everybody really needs that that kind of rush of endorphins and dopamine and everything else all that feel good stuff we're all ready for it how have you sort of managed to navigate the last two years on the island through all of that chaos um (laughs) so this is where the therapy and the hypnotherapy side comes into it of what i've been doing so one of the things that's been said to me so often is i wish i could do what what you've done and, and just kind of you know start a new life and get up and go or follow my dreams and and I felt a bit helpless because I thought, how? What is it about me that that I've, that's been able to do that? And other people feel as though they can't have it. And I just think it's it's total belief. And I've been interested in hypnosis for a long time. I did a taster course a couple of years ago, um, but that was back in the UK. And then I saw a a course advertised, and I just thought I'm going to give this a go because then it will give me the tools that. I can help other people to, to to instill some confidence in themselves and some belief. Um, so this is how I this is how I've got through the last couple of years. I've been studying so much. I've done course after course and um, been developing my business and really trying to help people. What do you think hypnosis is good for? Absolutely everything, really. Um, there's, there's some there are so many applications for it um, as I say confidence anxiety depression there are people leading psychologists that use it for trauma you know real deep-rooted trauma do you obviously use it along with other things um, but yeah it's got so many applications habits you know but I think that's the most common people just associate hypnosis with giving up smoking or uh, or weight loss um, but it, it's about teaching your mind to do something else instead of what it's learned to do over and over again so really the applications and, and the use of hypnosis are quite endless really. I mean, obviously in the movies we see that kind of, you know, look into my eyes, look deep into my eyes. I mean, how do you actually hypnotise somebody? So much hypnosis can be done just through conversation. This is the whole 
misconception of hypnosis because we've been sold this image of it on stage and screen and when you say to people I'm a hypnotherapist or a hypnotist and the first thing they say is don't have me running around like a chicken it's just like the, the, the standard line. naked <laughs> or don't have me eating an onion or something like that and I think this is this is um, half of the battle when you're trying to approach people with it as a solution to something that they need help with or that they've come come to you with help with and they're a little bit ooh because they think that they're going to be asleep or unconscious and trance you know we don't really put people into a trance it's all it's all this is all the hollywood like you said the hollywood and the tv and um, look into my eyes not around the eyes i mean dan booth here because the david blaine thing he's gonna shazam every time he sees me shazam I mean, I, I I always think of like you know Paul McKenna or uh, yeah you know I can't even think of any other famous hypnotist, but there's there's been a few that would normally spring to mind if my mind wasn't just a big bag of scrambled eggs like it has been <laughs> for the last couple of years. <laughs> Darren Brown, Darren Brown's a perfect example. He does a lot of hypnosis. And Paul McKenna. So yeah, I mean they're obviously the 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 few who have really turned it into a huge, very lucrative um, career, but. Um, but yeah, it's not about, don't get me wrong, sometimes we do the whole, you know, close your eyes and, and count down because some of the things that you, you're you working with, they do need that level of relaxation. But a lot of other things, as I say, it can be, it's called conversational hypnosis and you are working with what the person's giving you and you are putting suggestions into the conversation. So, I mean, the whole the word Machiavellian, you know, the Machiavellian was Machiavelli was a guy who used to use hypnosis in a very bad way. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> but again, you know, it's all kind of been dramatised and and made into this sinister, um, this, I don't know, this sinister thing. And it really is, and it's just so powerful. And, you know, as you probably know yourself, Eastern countries use hypnosis widely and embrace it. Um, and, you know, even things like storytelling are hypnosis. Mm. And we we do that a lot with our children and we allow them the luxury of letting their imaginations work out their problems for them. Whereas when we get to be adults, we don't use our imaginations as much. And so we don't allow our our own heads to to work things out we, we kind of internalize problems and ruminate on them instead interesting i think that's yeah 100 percent true and i think there's many tips and tools we've been talking about on this podcast in the last few months to you know address that exact situation people being stuck in their heads and i think anxiety is one of the big you know traumas of our time at, at this current moment in time and I, I that was one one of the reasons I actually really wanted to have this conversation today because I saw your brilliantly titled uh, workshop coming up this weekend called Tread on the Dread yeah. um, <laughs> which particularly stood out to me because I just signed up uh, rather unbelievably um, which we're going to be talking about in the next episode um, to a workshop run by a dear friend of mine Alex uh, Gray and she's a, an actress and she's putting on this workshop where you basically sign up to the uh, Lab 101. Mm-hmm. And it's like the torture chamber of your own heart. So you have to kind of 
create a piece of dramatization based upon your own worst nightmare and fears um, and then perform that on the second day in front of a ticketed live audience. And I mean, I did go to stage school when I was, you know, sort of back in my early, early teens, but I've never done anything like acting or dancing or singing or anything like that, apart from obviously podcasting, not quite the same. Um, since then, and the and that, that, I would say that actually is my worst nightmare to stand up in front of a load of people that I kind of know and and perform anything, um, and uh, you know that is a very human thing, isn't it? Not wanting to to be judged by others or mm-hmm. experience that kind of um, level of exposing and and showing oneself, which I think you know we've all had to kind of learn to do through setting up our own businesses, and it's always it's always terrifying. But I think one of the things that I teach on my podcasting courses is to encourage people you know to get out there and really show up and really put themselves out there and I think well if I'm asking all these other people to do that I'm just I'm gonna do this because it's gonna absolutely terrify the hell out of me and if I can actually go through with it I'm already looking at flights for England's and reasons to escape but I think actually <laughs> yeah I'm just gonna do it but like what would your advice be to how would I how do I well, you know I know when the day comes where I have to get up on the stage in the evening of the second day I'm gonna be literally a wreck okay two things first of all any doubts and fears are just a misuse of your imagination. And you can take that right across the board from anxiety to dep- depression. It's just a misuse of your imagination. So if you can imagine yourself being confident and yourself totally smashing it, then that's that's firing off different synapses in your head rather than this fear and this, oh, what, what if, what if, what, what if. And the other thing I would say, and this is a great technique, uh, anchoring, you know, have you heard of anchoring? Anchoring a state to yourself. So you can take yourself into a state. So say, think of somebody really confident who's, who is amazing on stage, somebody like Tony Robbins. Um, so just spend a few minutes with yourself, close your eyes and think about how he walks, how he presents on stage. He has all these thousands of people hanging on his every word. Um, and you, you become Tony Robbins. You become Tony Robbins in your head. You can even get up and walk around your room like Tony Robbins would do. And then you it's called an anchor. So it's either, you know, you've seen the woosa when people touch their finger and thumb to their ear, or you can do it, just touch your finger and thumb together. So you could say your your anchor word is Tony. So you yeah. So when you're ready to walk out on stage, you you put just say Tony to yourself, put your finger and thumb together and you strut out there like Tony Robbins. I like that. Big toe. I think I'm going to take a leaf out of uh, out of the old Mr. Robbins's book. I mean, he's, you know, definitely somebody who exudes, you know, extreme exuberance and also extreme confidence. I mean, my god, that man has got some big ones. Yeah, but he he's become so successful by giving away giving away for free all his best stuff this is how he's he's been so successful he gave everything away for free and then people started paying him to repeat the same things they had given away for free so yeah tony robbins is a great um is for if you've got nerves for stage or performance somebody like that is really great to kind of anchor that state to so what would you say that anxiety is based on? My fear of getting up there and feeling absolutely petrified of, of, of revealing myself. Like, what is that fear mechanism that we have about getting up and just like, yeah, letting it all out? There's so many, there's so much that can be attributed to it because for some people that I work with with performance or public speaking, they might have been in a school play 
They might have been picked on by a teacher if they were reading out loud. So there are factors like that. But again, it is, it's, like I said, there's so much behind it, but it's also this fight or flight mechanism. And it's just telling us that, that we're in a situation that we don't really know how to handle. And so we're going to either leg it or freeze or because we don't want to be made a fool you know we don't want to make a fool out of ourselves um but the problem is that our our brains are really quite primitive in that respect in the fight or flight response our brains have not cottoned on to the fact that not everything that we're a bit worried about deserves such a major response and so we get the heart pounding and we get the sweaty palms and we get the you know, all the the blood pumping through the body, ready to go, and it is that fear. And some people, this is what stage fright is, because it's the it's the freeze from the fight or flight, and they they freeze and they can't go out on stage. So there's all these factors going on, and yeah, I really I really hope that doesn't happen to me. But I I yeah, I, well, I think going to be Tony Robbins. <laughs> it's not going to happen to you. You're going to be Tony Robbins. You can even message me and I'll go, go for it, Tony. <laughs> I'm going to take your WhatsApp number before we finish this conversation. I might just need a little extra bit of impetus to uh, tread quite literally on the boards and on my dreads, which is, and um, that's why that actual title of that workshop really stood out for me because it was like treading the boards, obviously, um, from getting up and doing something theatrical. And then also the dread, the fear, the terror. I just feel nauseous even thinking about it. I've just kept myself so busy this week. I just haven't had time to even consider what I'm about to put myself through on Sunday um, and Monday. So Monday's the big, the big okay, one. Okay, and what are you doing it on? What's your biggest fear that you've got to do it on? Yeah, I kind of feel, I feel like I was going to really drag the conversation down, but I feel like it's <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be high to, vibes around here. Home first. Let's go back to home first. <laughs> we come from. Well, anyway, open a bottle of wine. We've got a we've got a Freedom Zero Zero alcohol free beer, which I'm loving at the moment. By the way, I just thought I'd drop that in there. This podcast is powered by Freedom. Because I, um, I, I don't drink, so yeah. When I first stopped drinking, I used to absolutely. I probably used to get a hangover from the Freedom. I used to. Drink drink so much of it yeah can it give you a hangover i don't know <laughs> it's all the hops you've got a hop hangover yes a hopping hangover <laughs> better than a whopping hangover that's, that's for sure for a podcast isn't it a hopping hangover <laughs> well we'll get some bunny ears it'd be brilliant <laughs> i'm quite up for that actually there's there's room for that one for, for maneuver oh dear i think um my worst nightmare Pretty, pretty much occurred more or less today in, some, in a small version of and news that my father had actually taken a, a small turn and, and collapsed. Uh, thankfully, my brother was there at the time and they were actually at a racetrack because my, my brother races uh, races cars and my dad has raced his entire life as well. So they, he was watching my brother at Brown's Hatch. They were on the, the cockpit and my dad was reaching in to pass him the seatbelt and he just blacked out and passed out on the floor and obviously my brother was very worried that he'd actually died oh, he's wow. 85 yeah, so same age as my dad actually yeah yeah, yeah. so I have when you get to your sort of mid 40s your yeah. parents are elderly and um my worst fear is not to be there if something happens that's serious to my parents and it you know obviously you try not to think about these things or entertain the idea because obviously thinking about them it was obviously yeah it just makes them brings them all the all the more home and closer and I you know there's many worse nightmares in this world but that's definitely 
in at number one for sure. Yeah, t- I'm, I'm totally with you there. I go through the same things again. And um, those are natural fears. Those are absolute natural fears. And these are the things that we should be getting, feeling anxious and worried about. Whereas a lot of people obsess about these kind of things and ruminate over them again and again and again. And going back to the Tread on Your Dread event, there are a lot of people who think that they're either born with anxiety and depression or that they will never get rid of it. And it's, that's, you know, that's just not true at all. I had depression for 20 years mm-hmm. and this is why I started DJing so late in life because I couldn't have done it in my younger years because I just wasn't mentally well enough to do it. Um, and so I, I'm really, really passionate about helping people work out and unpack what is genuine fear and genuine worry and genuine anxiety, the things that we should be worried about, like the health of our parents, rather than um, obsessing about things that we we really can't change and that we can't do anything about. And um, I think this is one of the issues that we've got uh, now, after the last two years, that there's there's still, like you said right at the intro, there's a lot of worry still and a lot of this heaviness hanging over people. And I just think people need a bit of help, so that's why I put the event together. Tell me what you're thinking about. Round and around and around we go. Round and around and around we go. And I often think, like, for example, if I was, I don't know, um, addicted to drugs, then I would not want to go and see a therapist who hadn't been addicted to drugs at some point because if that therapist hasn't been through what I've been through and can actually speak from experience, then perhaps I'm not going to put my faith and trust in them in the same way that I would from someone who'd been through what I'd been through. So, I mean, what would you... Why was your depression triggered? What brought that on for you? For, for me, it was the uh, the separation of my parents' subsequent divorce when I was at really influential at age and... I think they separated when I was about 10 and divorced when I was about 13. So that that hurt turned to anger and that anger turned to depression. So, um, and I, yeah, I suffered a long time and I was offered help along the way and I'd, kept, I'd keep going and seeing a therapist and, and um, kind of having a go at it, but I obviously wasn't ready. It took until I was in my 30s to, um, to go through that process. And knowing now what I know, I mean, I went every week for two years, which is which is long, you know. And and because I'm now, I'm now educated about research, how research has, has progressed, and the techniques that are used, I really do believe that that there are, therapy of all kinds can be done in a very short space of time, rather than you know. Two years out of your life for therapy is a long time. I once dated a man who'd been in therapy for more than seven years, and I think. The deeper we spoke about it, or the more we discussed it, I was I was starting to see that that was a bit of a red flag, or that his therapist was, you know, making a lot of money, and you know, it was like a wow, how how can you how can you be 
in one or two or three times a week therapy for, for seven years. I mean, if it's not improving or, you know, that situation, I mean, how long should you spend in therapy? Really one to six weeks. Seriously, <laughs> one to six weeks, yeah. Unless, don't get me wrong, if it's something uh, trauma-based, that's a different approach. Um, that that does take time. But even saying that, there, there are really skilled people working with um, war veterans and people who've suffered being in terrorist incidents and uh, really real uh, traumatic PTSD. And they're turning things around now in one or two sessions, the skilled, really skilled therapists so things have just changing so much and, and research is moving on and um i mean one of the things that has been researched now and put into place is the use of psychedelics again uh, i mean these were as you know banned in the 60s um when so much progress was being made then and so much research but they've, they're now finding and they're now working with uh, hallucinogenics and ketamine and things like that with al- uh, alcoholics and people who have gone through trauma. Um, because, again, it's that misuse of the imagination. So if you can put something in the brain along with therapy that helps it to imagine something else, it's highly effective. I'm imagining freedom. That's how I've got over not <laughs> drinking since the 1st of January. And I'm very proud to say that I've not had a drink since the 1st of January and you know I was like how am I going to navigate this how am I going to go to a bar and not drink uh, at all when everybody around me is drinking and actually just by imagining that that is a beer a real beer and it tastes just like it is is just the best thing ever I really never thought I could just do the sin sin alcohol cervezas but I'm quite happy well quite happy I guess you could say that it's a replacement but you know if it works it works it's it's amazing stuff. Like I say, I used to I used to drink a lot, and I still do really if I'm going out. Um, but it is a, a major crutch, and I never know whether to say crutch or crutch. So let's go with crutch. I'm quite liking crutch, but we'll go with crutch. <laughs> I mean, it could be either, really. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, it is. And I think when you're giving up drinking, are you? Is this just a, a dry January thing for you, or is it a progression into something? I'm not sure. About? Scott was asking me this last week. He's obviously another DJ that's that doesn't drink anymore, and um, I don't know. It started as dry January, and now I'm just kind of enjoying it. Yeah. The the hardest part is everybody else. That's the hardest part of quitting drinking. Because people will say, to, first of all, they'll say to me, why have you stopped? Why have you stopped? Why have you stopped? Like, did you have a drink problem? No, just stopped. <laughs> oh, they will still, even now, they're not as bad now. I'm like nearly three years in. But um, they'll say, you can have a shot though, can't you? You can have a shot. You know, it's like the royal family and the ham, the wafer thin ham. She's vegetarian. No, she can have wafer thin ham. No. <laughs> oh, if it's wafer thin, it just doesn't count. <laughs> That's it. It's just slips between the lips. <laughs> people will say, you can have a shot. Come on, have a shot. Like, just a little bit of pig. It won't hurt. <laughs> so that's it. It's still the people. <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, you know, that's like saying to a raging alcoholic. Like, just, just the one, Mrs. Wembley. I mean, it just doesn't, you know... It, I, I have a very good friend who's in AA. In fact, I have several good friends who are in AA. And I think, you know, people not respecting that boundary and need for somebody you know just one is the the road to destruction again it's like but why do other people need to see you drinking to kind of feel better about drinking themselves that's what I don't get I don't know I really don't know and it is that and like you said if if you were trying to give up uh, a, a, a drug 
you know, say you were trying to give up heroin, your friends wouldn't be saying to you, oh, go on, you can have a bit. You can have a bit. Oh, go on, it's the one hit. Yeah, it's Saturday. Come on. <laughs> they just wouldn't do that. So, um, so yeah, I don't know why. But it, when people are, are encouraging you to drink when you are quitting, it just shows how ingrained into into society it is because it is the norm to drink and it's not the norm not to drink so yeah I mean I don't know if that's just a British thing but I think it's an everyone it's a European thing as well because I mean I don't know many nations in Europe that don't like you know Spanish I think actually seem to have it quite firmly under control they're not boozers like the British booze like binge drinking but I feel like you know the French can be very measured have a little you know soupçon of vino in the (laughs) afternoon but I uh, yeah I just you know I just feel like it's just time for a break and that's that's the end of the story really. Yeah, and you do you do you feel the clarity feel that's not the right word. Do you feel more focused or is that not have you not got to that stage yet? Yeah, no, I, I just feel yeah, I'm feeling everything. I'm yeah. feeling a lot more in general. Uh, emotions and highs and lows and more subtle subtleties of life really and the roller coaster of every emotion that goes on in my mind that might have uh, you know sent me to the bar but to be fair yeah, I think that's quite a nice thing to to be much more aware of everything I'm going through. And, you know, I think we all had a few more drinks than we planned to in, in, in the last few years. I definitely can hold my hand up and say that was a thing for me at one point. And I feel like I'm just really enjoying not going there anymore and just like feeling like waking up every day is a is a joy. Mm, yeah, I think I think for me, it was the kind of three month mark. That's when I felt like, yeah, I've cracked it and I started to really feel the difference in everything that I was doing, like my focus towards work and um, I didn't have to go through that horrible looking at yourself in the mirror anymore going, oh my God, what have I done? (laughs) Did that happen a lot? Yeah. (laughs) Which is why I just just kept saying to myself, Helen, you just can't keep doing this, you know? And it, it wasn't, when I say a lot... It was more. It was just more than I was comfortable with. You know, it might have been once every couple of months, but and I re- just remember one day I was laid on the sofa, stonking hangover, and I thought this is just a day of your life that you've wasted just laying on the sofa watching Columbo in my pajamas. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> but that's how vivid that day was in my mind because I know exactly where I was and what I was doing, and I just thought I can't do this anymore. It's ridiculous. That's the thing I find fascinating and, and what probably obviously fuels your business as a hypnotherapist. It's like, why do humans make the same mistake time and time again? I mean, you know, we are quite intelligent creatures on the whole. And I would say I must have made the same mistake about a million times with various <laughs> different things. And it's like it's an interesting thing because you observe yourself doing it. And you're like, I'm never going to do that again. And maybe even a couple of days later, Ibiza is not an easy place to go. Nope. Never going to do that again. And then <laughs> two minutes later, you're doing it again. Yeah, it's because that's the, that's your hippocampus. Because you can you can tell your conscious self all day long, I'm going to quit this, I'm not going to do it. But if there's still a tiny little bit of pleasure in it, the hippocampus, it's like a secretary, it'll send a note up to, up to the front of your brain and it'll say, yeah, well, no, come on, let's do this. It's, no, we really enjoy it. And this is why people struggle so much to quit things like drinking, things like smoking, because... Their conscious mind, they're like, right, that's it, I'm done, I'm going to quit. But then after two weeks, this little email comes from the back of their head and goes, actually, we quite enjoyed that. 
and the hippocampus. What the hell is that? It's that bit in the back of your brain. It's like mm. a bit of a secretary. The hippocamp. <laughs> yeah, it's, it sends messages up. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is why you, willpower is just fundamentally flawed because willpower is your conscious. That's you trying consciously to stop doing these things over and over and over again. And that your conscious mind is not in the one the one that's in control. It's a little secretary with her emails back no that's very interesting I, I didn't know about the hippocampus and actually someone mentioned mentioned that to me mandy who's scott's wife oh, yes. um mentioned about the hippocampus and i actually thought it was a it was a joke she was talking about a hippocampus <laughs> now i know that she's actually the the clever one what was mandy talking about the hippocampus <laughs> I don't remember why, but it was something about them. I was talking about the madman upstairs, basically our minds. And I think she said something about the hippocampus, and I sent her back a picture of a hippo. <laughs> Slightly worrying that. Amazing! I'm gonna I'm gonna message Mandy and ask her what she's talking about with the hippo. Let's, let's have a chat. Let's have a coffee about. Maybe she needs to come on the podcast and tell me the answer. Yeah, maybe she does. Get on, get on. She's great, Mandy. So tell us about your love affair with Ibiza. I mean, obviously you've talked about the music side of it and why you wanted to be here. But, you know, how are you finding it four years in? I just I love the community. That's the main reason why I wanted to move here because I'd done that season. And and then I, you just get to know so many people. And then when you stay through winter, it becomes like a village, a big village. And I just don't think that you get that anymore in the UK. I think... As we all know, you can live next to somebody in the UK and not really know your neighbour at all. Whereas here, there's always somebody to talk to, there's always somebody around, there's always somebody to go out and do things with. Um, even if you go out on your own, you'll bump into somebody who you know and you can sit and, and the weather, obviously. So, um, yeah, that, um, uh, four years in, it's been tough because we didn't know what was going to happen and I was just really getting established and and getting some good jobs in and getting some good work coming through um but you know to going back to talking about parents people have said to me would you go back to the UK and I've said I would if my parents ever needed me to of course but apart from that there's just no way that I'd go back to that um that way of life it it is the way of life here it's you know the community as I say and the sun how would you compare the mindset of people here to the people of uh, Last of the Summer Wine? Ooh! <laughs> Not a batter. Um <laughs> Not a batter. <laughs> it's... <laughs> oh, that's a really tough one. It's a good question, that. It's a tough one because there, there are two totally different mindsets. Um... Home Firth, where I'm from, is a it's a town, but it's a very, very small town. It's on the outskirts of Huddersfield. And it has that small town mindset. Um as as I'm in any other town or village, I guess, in the UK, you've got your, most of your people who live there have lived there all their lives. And so for somebody to kind of break off and then go to Ibiza and become a DJ, it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know. Um and the mindset here, it's, it's, whoa, I don't know, because you've got a bit of everything here. I mean, I feel like the number one reason why I needed to leave England at that point in time was that, you know, I was, I was 31, 32. And I felt like, you know, all my friends were married with children and had these amazing high flying jobs. And I just quit mine to become a yoga teacher. And I was living in Brighton. And I, yeah, I just wasn't really in that 
you know, frame. No, I was in that frame of mind, but it just, my life was not going in that direction. And I think, you know, sometimes when you exit that environment, when you're feeling like really, I don't, this is not, this is not my world. And I really, yeah, I really wanted to like just be in a new place where I could kind of be with like-minded people. And I think there are a lot of people here who are, yeah, just they're not in that situation. Yeah, that is what did it for me. I was, like I say, I remember being sat on the sofa, looking out of the window in the UK and just thinking, is this it? Is this it? Is this my life? I thought, I don't want this. I've got to go. I've got to give it a try in Ibiza. So, um I think there are a lot of us here that have done that. We kind of got past 30 or even 40 and I thought, yeah, I need to give it a go. It's just an interesting moment in time. And I think, you know, literally the whole of Europe have kind of, it feels like they've exited um, the big cities that they were living in and the, and the high power jobs as everyone became remote anyway. And all the all the bosses around the world realised that, you know, all the people they said couldn't work from home can actually do their job remotely. So we're, obviously there's been like a mass exodus and the island is like ramajammed really. I mean, there's not a lot of property around, I'm hearing, not I'm looking. But I think, you know, it's kind of, there's been a real influx and a surge in people that perhaps would never have been able to move here that suddenly they can which is kind of exciting it is yeah but um, going back to the mental health side this is causing problems because as much as people are loving working from home it's also increasing the amount of people who are feeling isolated and lonely because for a lot of people you know so many people now live on their own and that was their social hub as well as the work hub going to the office and so it's we've got this um yeah it's 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 a dichotomy it's a double-edged sword it's people have got this freedom and they love working from home and some of us are really organized and we can do that work time whereas other people are falling to bits because they're just totally lost without um without the workspace so um yeah there's there is that aspect to this kind of exodus I mean, loneliness kills people. It's just a simple fact. And, you know, absolutely, I was working from home and all of this began. Then I got stuck in India and I was stuck in a little hotel room by myself, like working from underneath the table with some duvets and pillows reading the news for about three months. Then I got stuck in Brighton for a month living in a whacking great big house that a friend very kindly gave me the keys to. Um, Thank you, Maria Valentine, if you're listening. Um, And... Yeah, again, I was completely by myself all day, every day. And I was like, how am I going to how am I going to deal with this? Like, that's almost four months as I was just completely by myself working from home. And I and I was I was a bit of a mess by the end of it. Yeah. it And again, it's that misuse of your imagination, because if, if you're not but if you're not getting out and talking to people, you've only got your own thoughts just going round and round and round. And um and this is why it's so vital that, that people do get out and socialise and become part of something bigger than themselves if they're, if they're no longer able to go. You know, it's, it's our essential needs. That is exactly when I joined this place, The Hub, where we're, we're sitting now. And I think if it hadn't been for The Hub, actually, at that moment in time, I, I think I would have gone completely stir-crazy and I couldn't have worked from home a minute more. It was quite clear, you know that it just wasn't doing me any good and that's an interesting thing because as you said you know the whole world has now started to work from home there's these digital nomad types who are you know doing their own thing from various spaces but a lot of them do come to like places like a co-working or they're not always you know sitting by themselves at home but that feels like the dream until you actually start doing it and then it's like 
Christ, this is this is actually horrible. Yeah, because you've got to. Well, you, you're at home and you're working, and you're thinking, right, I'll just put the washing on. I'll just do this. I'll just do that. And we've also got that other thing of people. So many people are posting these, you know, social media. No, I'm, I'm, I'm in Bali. I'm just working. <laughs> there's so many people, like, you know, selling insurance, thinking, well, I'm not in Bali. <laughs> Where am I failing? Where am I going wrong? Yeah. I've got your bikini, love. <laughs> <laughs> I once saw that in a place also called The Hub in Koh Phangan. It was a co-work. And a guy was sitting there hosting a Zoom meeting from his from, from his waist up in a shirt and tie, lying, ah, giving it the big one. And then basically he hit the end call, ripped off his shirt, and he was in his little board shorts and just <laughs> ran off into the scene. And I was like, that guy's got it all figured out. Yeah, he has. He's got it. He doesn't sell insurance, though, does he? No. <laughs> I don't think so. I think he was more of like a headhunter or a, <laughs> an investment banker. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> What's the worst job you've ever done? Oh, crikey, what is the worst job I've ever done? So, I, uh, I don't know, I was, I, I was a bouncer for 18 years. I was a bouncer for 18 years, but I, I had my own company. I developed my own company out of it, so I did really well with that. So in terms of worst, it wasn't that, it was, that was dangerous, and it was nights, and it was cold, and it was rain, and all that, so that was... That aspect of it was pretty bad. I think one of the worst jobs I've ever had, in fact, yeah, was just before I came here. So I did the season here, and then I went back to the UK, and I got it in my mind that uh, I was going to move over here. And so I took a temp job in a call centre. I've never done call centre work before, and that was uh, customer service for Debenhams. Oh, my days. So you get... It was peak season, it was over Christmas and New Year, so that's why they've taken all these temps on to deal with the, the order processing. and the com- It was all just complaining customers. It was p- customers complaining that their things hadn't been delivered, and that's just all we dealt with. And I had one guy screaming at me that I'd ruined his Christmas because his wife's dress hadn't come. And- yeah, that doesn't sound like fun. It can't. It can't be your fault. I mean, come on. I know, but you make it fun then, because then you see you, you're all like on your hexagon table or whatever it is, and you go right. Well, let's see how many more Christmases we can ruin today on this shit. So you have like to. the Grinch. That's reframing it. It's fine. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And um, yeah, I think we've all done some some dodgy bits of work as a temp in the past. My my worst was when I I think it was Johnson and Johnson. And I had to wear steel toe cap shoes and a hairnet. And I was filling little pots of face cream and putting them on a production line. I lasted about a day and a half. And on the second day, I just, I, I actually walked out and said, please don't pay me. I just, <laughs> I know I'm only 17, but I just cannot handle this. You can have that on me. <laughs> I don't even want your face cream either. Just keep it. I mean, yeah, just did not. Did not feel good. The hairnet, I mean, it was the most mortifying thing at that age when I was quite conscious about looking cool. Uh, walking around in a hairnet and then popping out in the break and just seeing everybody, you know, smoking a fag and looking morbidly depressed. That was a, that was a sign of what I needed to do, what were my ducks I needed to get into a row for the for the future of my life to not end up filling pots of face cream. I mean, you know, obviously someone's got to do it, but it was it definitely didn't feel like a highlight. I don't think I've ever had a hairnet job. I don't think. I have. <laughs> I've actually, I've had a couple. No. I worked at a go-karting track and you had to wear a hairnet underneath the helmet. Nice, nice. Now, the Debenhams thing, they taken, I mean, they took, took about 100 people on as temps and they were going to offer eight permanent positions at the end of it. And I was one of the eight that they want, they asked to stay on. They offered me a permanent job. And this is kind of when it all came to light. Is this it? 
is this it? Is this this is where I need to make a decision? <laughs> I hope Debenhams are not listening to this podcast. Gone bankrupt now. Have they? Yeah, not far. F- not far. It was, it was the Grinch that stole Christmas. He rang up and said, "Listen, guys, you're ruining everyone's Christmas." Yeah, it was like <laughs> you ruined me. He was really screaming at me. So funny. You ruined my Christmas. Well, he probably got divorced after that. <laughs> or maybe that was what it was. But she wouldn't have even known. It was a gift for his wife, so she wouldn't have even known that the dress wasn't coming. He probably told her, because like, nothing turned out on Christmas Day. She had nothing to open, and he was in the doghouse. Hermes would have chucked it over the wall. <laughs> Hermes, like... And his wife. <laughs> Bless him. That, that sounds awful. Oh, well. Oh, this feels like a good place to potentially end this podcast. But I very much enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you. Likewise. It's been great. Thanks for asking me. No worries, and good luck with your Tread on the Dread uh, workshop this weekend, and I guess if there's a space left, people can find you at? Yeah, it's um, www.learn.helendickinson.com Perfect, Jane. Have a lovely weekend, everybody. We'll see you next Friday. Reset Rebel Coming to you every-